Sanjay, welcome to Stories in AI. It's uh, been a little over a year. How are you today? I'm doing very well. And it's great to be back with you, Ganesh. It is amazing to get, get back with you. I've been following your stories on LinkedIn and all the other uh, channels too. And boy, how has the world changed in the last year since we spoke, especially in AI? Can you believe it? <laughs> a year ago when we were together, we probably couldn't have guessed where we would be today. Um, it is absolutely amazing. And no. uh, um, I'm just, I marvel at everything we've done in the last year. And I kind of am amazed at the pace of change that we've now started to see. But, you know, we must always remember that the pace of change we see today is the slowest it'll be in the future. And so <laughs> it is a one-way trip and it's getting it better. It's getting faster almost and like, getting really exciting. You know, almost like the, 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 the Star Trek warp drive is the way I'm actually thinking this, right? Now, when like AI has been coming for the last 100 years or 80 years and stuff, and slowly you're cranking it up, cranking it up, cranking it up, and said. So, then Chad GPD hits the bar uh, in December last year, and then poof, you just shot into the future very quickly. Talk to me about the historical nature of the, the significance of this, this moment right now. Well, you know, Ganesh, I mean, uh, it's almost like the last piece of that jigsaw puzzle that we've been working on for the last few years. We've got this amazing painting and it's broken into all these little jigsaws. We're putting and piecing the parcels together. And you and I have been on the journey around NLP and computer vision and all of the step functions that we've had. But I think it feels like we're here today at a point when that last piece just slid in and the entire jigsaw puzzle is now complete. And you step back and you look at it and there's only one word for it. It's wow. I think, um, I think what transformers uh, in general and ChatGPT being one example of them have done is They've solved for a problem we've had with AI for a long time. And I say that as a problem now at the time, we didn't think of it as a problem. You know, we've always known that AI has been a fantastic, fantastic prediction machine, right? Uh, and we've talked about this in our previous conversation as well. Um, so I live in Seattle, as you know, and I look around and say, is it going to rain tomorrow? And the reality is AI is going to give me a fantastic prediction on the probability of rain tomorrow, right? It's amazing. It's better than anything else we've had. But if I asked a different question and say, do I need to bring an umbrella? It can't tell me to bring an umbrella because bringing an umbrella is judgment. It's taking the probability of rain tomorrow. It's thinking about what I'm going to wear. Am I going to a board meeting? Am I going to a, a, a startup meetup? Am I wearing my suit? Am I wearing my jeans and my polos, right? And am I going to walk a lot? Am I just going to drive there and then just dart in? Like a lot of things go into that decision-making, let alone my own preference on do I want to get wet? How much, how much rain can I tolerate? All that sort of stuff. Sure. So it can tell you whether it's going to, what the probability of rain is, but it can't tell you whether you should take an umbrella. And it's, this, it's, the, it's what we got used to. And I think what transformers have done for the first time, and if you go back and look at some of the scientific papers that got published, I think the way they got there with, uh, was the reinforcement learning with human feedback is the reward function was changed, not just to come back with an accuracy of prediction, but the appropriateness of the answer. And you know, really what's been amazing is you train it for some information and somehow that model seems to transfer applied to so much. And so I think, I think what it's really done uh, behind the scenes, it's allowed us to move away from just prediction to now a little bit more of a judgment. And I think that's what we're all marveling Amazing. at, you know, when sort of the average person goes on and sees the responses and they go, wow, it isn't just the prediction accuracy, it's actually the judgment that's coming into play. You know, um, it's interesting. I met Sam Altman, um, this year at South by Southwest, right? Early this year in March in Austin. 
And one thing he said really stuck with me. He said, look, I mean, we've all known that this capabilities are always there. It's like the future is it's just getting more equally distributed. But he said, like, but the expectation gap, right, of what human beings or everybody in the society expected where AI was today was just completely blown out of the water. They were surprised and caught off guard with what they saw with ChatGPT, right? So his point was, look, I mean, yeah, we've had this in the lab for the last two or three years, and we've done many different things. There's been people playing with it. But the moment you put it in a packaging in a way that people just got exposure to this human level, notionally intelligence, and I, you know, that's a questionable word there. Is it really intelligence or is it just really fast, amazing, you know, connectivity of data and contextualization? Um, it's, it's just completely blew things out of the water. But what, I, what you said is actually the very... You know, essence of uh, it's very that's the very essence that captures the moment because, you know, human language, English language or human language in general has played a very, very powerful role in the civilization and the involvement of the, the evolution of intelligence and the human civilization in general. And and the language is very different than just as a prediction you would make in a particular mathematical problem. Right. It's a lot more unstructured than structured. And, you know. That, that example that you made, should I, it's not just whether I, sh, uh, you know, Seattle's, it's going to rain in Seattle, but it's like, should I wear a suit? Should I carry an umbrella? Should, what kind of shoes should I wear? Uh, will I get wet? You know, capturing all of that nuances of that, right? Because we live in a world where we say the nose runs and the feet smells, <laughs> right? I mean, that's human language, right? And, uh, and people get it. Humans get it. An algorithm is not going to get it. But I think you're right. The transformer model, the ability to transfer these capabilities and, you know, learning capabilities and adapting it to multiple heads or multiple kind of task types really gave us the flexibility to go make this happen. So what does this mean for enterprises? Where are we right now? And so there's like, so there's AI, a lot of things change. Chat GPT or like quote unquote generative AI comes in. Um, I think one other thing is definitely... Um, the the earlier the only kind of task you were automating was very numerical or finite tasks. Now you kind of get a little bit more on the creativity side and stuff. So talk to me about what does this mean for enterprises today? Well, the first thing I'll tell you, uh, Ganesh, um, I've been through so many board conversations, um, large corporations around the globe, and I'll just give you a three time stamp um, view just so you can get a sense for how fast I've perceived the change. I'd say about six, seven months ago, much of the board discussions at large corporations across the globe was some version of what I'm going to say, a little exaggeration, but not too far off, which is, um, well, we kind of heard about generative AI, and I think we heard about NFT and blockchain, and there's this thing called metaverse, and really exciting. But can we get back to work now? Right? Like that was the conversation at a board, you know, go back to November, if you will. I think if you fast forward about three, four months, I'm thinking like around March timeframe, many of the conversations I got pulled into almost were like 180 degrees on the other end, which is, oh my God, this is a state of uh, panic. Um, our data is going to get lost. Uh, we're going to do horrible things to people. We are uh, going to misrepresent ourselves. The hallucination is going to throw people off track. Like, how do we block it? How do we stay away from the dangers? Can you help us shut it down, right? Like that's the conversation, right? And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I, I'm going to give you a sense for the color and the tenor. You fast forward to now and any of the board discussions you go into, uh, you know, and I get a chance to go and talk to a variety of different companies. It's a very different discussion, which is 
this seems to be for real. Uh, if we don't do something about it, we're going to get disintermediated. In the long arc of time, we're not going to be relevant. And so what are we doing? To, excuse me, what are we doing? No, 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 I meant what are we doing today? And it's kind of like, show me now and here what we're doing. And so I just think that progression from, I don't really care about it, to now it's the number one agenda on corporate boards is actually a reflection in my mind of where enterprises are. Uh, but the answer to your question is, look, they're all over the spectrum, right? Um, I think uh, I see use cases that are in production today that are absolutely amazing. They're not hypothetical. They're not probabilistic. They're not sometime in the future. This is happening here and now today. And example after example, you reflect on it and you say, it's changing the way people work. It's changing the, the durable value proposition that the company brings to its clients. And it's fundamentally putting them in a very competitive track. And so I believe now it's an imperative that corporations need to get on it completely. And by the way, there's challenges, a lot of missteps, enough money that's going to be wasted, et cetera. But it's not something you can ignore or walk away from anymore. So, so talk to me, give me some examples of some of the practical uses that's happening yeah. today. Well, I mean, I think the three most talked about areas of application, which are really conversational AI and knowledge management. Number one, it's actually all around the sales and marketing, number two, and then all of the software programming, business analytics uh, insights, number three. They're very obvious and you'll have heard a ton of these. I mean, on the first one, as an example, you know, client of ours, uh, um, they're in the video, they're essentially in the internet distribution, cable distribution, video uh, a distribution uh, world. And, and so they've got an environment where they have field engineers that'll go to sort of the box that's sitting on your neighborhood, if you were to call in and complain that the video or the bandwidth is not good enough to your, to your office or to your home, someone would show up on that box and they'd be trying to figure out what's going on. And the reality is it's a very complex technical troubleshooting mechanism to be able to think through all the wires and all the protocols and then your home and, 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 and diagnose the problem. And then, you know, obviously time is of essence, quality of services of essence, and the labor pool or the talent pool is very, very difficult, right? So you just don't have all the right people you need. And so the ability to actually diagnose exactly which of those wires and which protocol on what wire, and then on the spot, get a video play out of how you fix that is just significantly changing the quality of uh, service they're able to deliver. You look at an example in sales and marketing, uh, um, you know, we work with a company here called GoDaddy and GoDaddy is a great example of someone who actually provides a domain name, but also dom domain, but also provides services around that. And, you know, we think about small business, small businesses, right? Molly's Bakery on the corner of 4th and Main here as an example. She signed up for a website years ago. Uh, she's got a, a domain that uh, they booked and obviously the intent probably was to build a website, but never got to it because she's busy at the bakery from seven to seven. And so now the ability to use generative AI to actually create that website copy, be able to do A-B testing on the fly with almost no involvement from her and then go back to her and say, Molly, here's the suggested website. What do you think? Completely changes the game there, right? And then, of course, on computer uh, programming, you know, we're seeing upwards of 30% productivity improvement. I think on business insights, by the way, just in my own company, the ability to ask a question in English or another language, but in English, and then have that automatically convert to SQL, run against the database, get the query results back, transform that into a narrative, and get me a paragraph back. It's it's. Forget efficiency, forget like the old ways of, you know, business user going to business analyst, going to programmer, going to developer, to go to QA and then all the thing back, right? Like forget all of that stuff. It's the ability to get that um, 
ability to interrogate the data by a business user, that's just amazing, right? So all of the standard use cases, I think, you know, you'll have seen great examples, but I'll give you three that I think are really, really interesting that are a little bit outside of the fold. So the first one I love is in agriculture and farming. Now, who would have thought, right? Uh, but it turns yep. out if you could go talk to the chief supply chain officer of, uh, of, um, of Costco, um, another Seattle-based company, by the way, um, it turns out that berries is the fastest moving skew in their entire inventory. And, and as you double-click into it, what I learned was berries is a five-day supply chain cycle. Apparently, berries are the freshest the day you actually pick it. And then from the day it's wow. baked, it's about a five-day life too. It needs to be eaten at your, at your breakfast table. And so think about berries. Oh, by the way, berries come from different parts of the world. So, you know, I, don't, I never thought about it when I bought berries, but now I know. This week when I go pick my berries at the grocery store, they might be, for instance, and I don't know exactly where, they might be coming from Florida, as an example. Well, a month from now, they'll be coming from Peru. And a month from there, they'll be coming from Brazil. So it's actually follow the season model. The company owns the plants. The farmers actually take the plants and grow the berries. They sell the berries back. You've got this very fractional, sort of fragmented, distributed, globally kind of sourcing mechanism. And then you have a five-day mechanism to get it from there to, to, to basically your breakfast table. And so in that high-velocity supply chain, the number one thing you have to get right is the forecasting. When is it going to be uh, right? And that's a big problem because you get it wrong, you waste a lot of stuff. You don't get the supply chain, all the movement in place. And you know, as an example, if the berries were to ripen in Mexico on the day after World Cup, you can pretty much kiss that uh, that 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 production goodbye. And so what we're doing is we're using generative AI to actually take. So you put cameras in in a small patch of this field across the world, and it's actually filming every single day how that plant is growing, how the leaves are coming, how the color of the fruit changing. And you can actually very accurately now predict which day the forecasting is going to be the forecast, which day the, it's going to be the ripest. And so it's completely changed the supply chain for something as simple as that, that you and I experience, but perhaps didn't think of. I'll give you two more examples. Um, medicine. Um, I was talking to a, a client of ours there in the insurance business. They also have a business that does telemedicine. If you're like me, you probably have had at least one session with a doctor, particularly through COVID on a video interface like this. Uh, well, this company does this at a scale. And he was telling me uh, on the average, um, a doctor spends eight minutes on a patient. Okay. This is based on all of the history of conversations they've had. Obviously, they have a lot of telemetry embedded in these kinds of things. That eight minutes is four minutes talking to the patient and four minutes actually doing the documentations, the insurance paperwork, the pharmacy recommendations, the prescription, the internal notes, right? So it's four and four. Uh, obviously, it's on video, so you essentially apply generative AI to that. And it isn't just about transcribing the notes. It's actually about putting it in the context of a medical form, of an insurance write-up, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. And so what's happened is that equation has changed from four and four to six minutes with the patient and two minutes on the documentation. Two minutes because you still have to review it, still have to prove it, but most of the grant work is already done. Now think about what that means. I mean, the quality of care, the patient perception, the NPS has gone up 50%. They're getting 50% more time with the doctor, right? Think about the employee, in this case, the doctor, medical school, all of this hard work to get to their career. And now half their time is spent on documentation, that gets reduced by 50%. And so employee satisfaction goes up. And these are things that are happening as we speak. I mean, this you know, I was at dinner with, uh, with, uh, with a colleague CEO and he was telling me they're two weeks into it. So it's very early days. But it's real. It's here. It's now. It's happening. Um, <clears throat> some really, really cool examples. I'll give you one more last one from the advertising world. Um, a colleague of mine runs 
data from one of the largest advertising firms. And he was telling me that what they've done is they've taken every single asset over the last 30 years, any print ad, any video ad, uh, multiple languages, multiple countries, they're all over the world. And they've essentially run every single asset through the generative AI engine. And where previously they used to have a label on it that might say two Asian men on a video conference, as an example, a label for this might be, now they're generating 180 labels per asset. So down to the color of my shirt, the, you know, the, the, the books behind my, yep. you know, my, on my wall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fast forward to now generating the next piece of creative. And as you go to think, and I never thought about this, but the creative process is actually thinking about a story or a plot or a line or angle, and then being able to research and see what worked, what had great results and so forth. And then now you can actually pull up the pieces and see this is the lighting, this is the color, this is the angle that actually got great results versus not. And then of course, understand who actually worked on it, sharpen your recruiting engine to get the right creative. I mean, it's changing the face of how they yeah. operate. And so these are examples, they're not hypothetical, they're not about to happen tomorrow, they're not case study, they're not use cases that we wanna think about. This is today, this is here, yeah. this is now. No, I know, and then like a lot of those um, examples resonate. We've been like, you know how I'm, I'm close in healthcare, do specifically focus on healthcare with my day job with autonomized AI. And one of the things that we're actually seeing, so we built early capabilities. The telemedicine example that you showed you was my first prototype a year and a half ago when we were looking to do this. We used a Zoom call and in real time transcribed it and then applied classical NLP approaches like name entity recognition, relation extraction to identify the key notes and stuff. But the capability to generate a summary after that wasn't as good. I mean, we used to do extractive summaries, not like abstractive summaries like you get with these GPD models. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, it, and more often than not, what we found at that time was actually the business model alignment because you couldn't really capture that savings for them. So they were like, oh, that's great. I'm a telemedicine company. My first focus is trying to make sure that somebody picks up the phone when you call them. So, immediacy of care was their focus and technology was not there. Now I'm sure every one of them is going back and say, oh my God, we need that capability to go to make this happen, right? To, to example on medicine, on, the, uh, so to, on, on that same note, so we work with a lot of healthcare insurance companies and we're now, you know, like the, the, you're talking about member NPS and you know, member experiences, you know, we're using this real core uh, capabilities like generative AI in places like prior authorization or HEDIS risk adjustment in real time and claim and case management, wherein you're trying to left shift, like how do you improve your auto approval rates for prior auth, right? Because imagine the patient is asking for an MRI and they've just had a CT scan in the last thing and they didn't find anything. So you need that expensive MRI. But today, I mean, you go back and you have to review their charts to look at their medical history to make a determination, right? And that costs people and there is a... Uh, $45 an hour nurse who's reviewing it that passed on to $150 an hour doctor who's actually reviewing it. And they're making deci decisions, determination while impacting the patient wait time. And they're waiting for their critical service to get over. Now, imagine if you already have these things and these are decisions and reasoning that humans make based on, oh, they've had this history. They need this particular uh, uh, thing. They've actually done this particular, you know, uh, uh, different procedure that we were going to recommend previously. The doctor has this note, which has this very specific, you know, clarification why they need this thing. Give all the information, auto approve it, right? And that takes, you know, seconds or milliseconds to go make that happen, right? So it 100%. just can, it has the, 
it has the ability to not just drive efficiencies for enterprises, which I'm sure, you know, and I'm hearing in board conversations, like it's like, I mean, we can, can we compress our knowledge work, you know, timelines, can we do more with less and all of that conversation, but it also has the other impact of improving member experience, patient experience generally in healthcare and so forth. So one, it's very interesting when you, when you bring that historical perspective in the work you've been doing, one thing that I think you said, but I just want to underscore that a little bit and also clear up some of the confusion. I mean, there's a sense that generative AI by itself uh, and standalone is the answer to every question on the, on the planet. And the reality couldn't be further from the truth, right? I think, exactly. and I think you said it well, right? In the work you've done on the telemedicine example and the early work you did, I think the reality is, um, you know, like this video feed likely is, I'm assuming you're in your home office. Um, you know, for years we've invested in, in protocols and bandwidth and optical fiber <laughs> down to the box on your neighborhood. <laughs> Uh, we've gotten you the right TV, or you bought yourself the right TV, the mechanisms, the software, all of that stuff. And the last piece of it was that cable that brings it wow. down from the box in the neighborhood to your house, right? And and oh my God, suddenly you're watching a movie at 4K in your home theater and you're going, wow, that one thing made the difference. And of course it made the difference because it was the last piece of, of the puzzle. Yeah. But actually you have to think about the cumulative end effect of all of the innovations that have happened. Um, I'll give you another great example. Um, I was with a colleague and a dear friend, um, and he uses, they use, the company uses, a public company, they're using generative AI for forecasting of sales. And essentially they're piecing through the client salesperson conversations to be able to predict and therefore forecast at scale, at volume. And, you know, it's generative AI, of course, because it can understand the conversation in a much better way than possible, but it's all the machine learning. It's all the data. It's all the predictive methodologies from past you know, years or months of data that allows you to then take that conversation, convert it into essentially embeddings and numerical values that you can then apply to a, a model underneath it and then come back with a forecast. And so, you know, the you know, people look at it and say, wow, that's generative AI, that's great. Well, yes, of course it's generative AI, but it's generative AI and really the broader set of AI capabilities we've been building. Yeah. I, I just yeah, thought no, it was I... worth re-mentioning in the way you said it, it came out, but it is so important and often we forget that generative AI is really just one slice, very important slice, by the way. But exactly. when you when you deploy it, you need a fuller set of uh, tools you know, in the toolkit. You're you're so spot on, Sanjay. And I think the other the the what that also means playing that out is actually when you are in an, an you're an enterprise, you're looking to say, let me just go b get some LLMs and generative AI to do it. You got to think beyond that. You got to think like a system. You got to think the classic system design in terms of like what are you trying to solve for? What business problem? It's a classic. It's it's the boring stuff, right? It's a thing that you do. Have you do you have the right data? Can you you know just because you have another chatbot like your competitor on the website that uses GPT four doesn't give you any competitive advantage? You just burnt a lot of cloud compute money. You can uh, you know do a you know you you just say and you can declare victory internally, but it doesn't really move the needle because you're not differentiated anymore, right? So I, I did a, you know, I think yesterday I did a post on LinkedIn and um, like I came up with this, uh, well, I, I can't take all the credit. I think I first heard from um, Alex, uh, you know, the, the uh, snorkel AI guy, where you think of a two by two matrix, right? And on the bottom, on the X axis, it's, uh, you know, POC to production in enterprises. And on the y-axis, it's, uh, you know, out-of-the-box, classic, you know, uh, vanilla capabilities to bespoke, specialized, domain-centric capabilities. ChatGPT is bottom left, right? You know, if you think about it, 
And almost 90% of the applications that you see people throwing out there using GPT APIs are in the bottom left. Enterprises, 90% 90 of the use cases in enterprise are top right, where you have to build bespoke capabilities for the enterprise, for their business process, and you have to run that in production. So you have to have the scalability, the, the you know all this kind of stuff, right? And that's an important nuance. This happens in all the time. Whenever you know, we oh, saw this with mobile, we saw this with right. Um, it's beyond important. It is mission critical, right? I think the point you're making, Ganesh, is that POCs and pilots will not results make, and that is so true. It was true with digital transformation. You look at the amount of money and investment and effort that got uh, spent that didn't return. Uh, I think much in the same way, generative AI, you know, must be navigated very carefully. You know, I get a chance to work across industries. One of the things I love, by the way, about my day jobs. In my day job, I'm working with CIOs, CTOs, CDOs, Fortune 500, maybe Fortune 1000 corporations. We're helping them instrument, deploy data, technology, AI solutions into the context of digital transformation. By the way, my night job, just like you, I have a very different night job. I actually spend time in the venture capital industry, some with startups, some with VCs. I'm with emerging tech and really helping those CEOs actually navigate as well. So I kind of get to see both sides of it. And here's what I'll say. Um, I pulled I pulled about 50-ish slightly under of, our of my colleagues in the enterprise Fortune 1000 technology offices and try to kind of come up with what are like some of the basics that you have to get right for it to be successful. And in the end, kind of summarize it down to four things. I just pushed, pushed an article on that last night. Um, the first of those goes back to what you're saying, right? Which is start with the strategy first, right? This is not an answer looking for a question. You've got to yep. put all of that stuff aside and you have to say, what is a fundamental question? I'll give you an example, right? And this is a great example. We work very closely with this pharmaceutical manufacturer and uh, a great colleague and a respected friend. She was telling me, look, we're in a trajectory of changing the company to go from delivering medicine the way we do today to what we call precision medicine. And I said, you know, what, what does that mean? And she said, look, Sanjay, here's what it is. Today you go to a, your pharmacy and, and we as a manufacturer do the drug discovery, get it through the clinical trials, get it approved, mass produce it, ship it, and then stock it at your retail pharmacy. And then you show up at the pharmacy and you buy what you need to buy. And there you go. And the reality is medicine is going to be much more precise in the future. And what's going to happen is we're not going to produce anything ahead of time. We're going to wait for you to send me, send us a sample of your DNA. So you get a blood draw or some of this DNA and it goes in. And then once they have the sample, they will mix the cocktail specific to me. And then it has to be shipped out to me and it goes in my arm within 48 hours from when it's manufactured. That's great concepts, amazing precision medicine. But you step back and think about it. Like if you're a corporation that is doing think about supply chain, the manufacturing engine, like the whole mechanism of shifting a company that does mass manufacturing of a medicine to a company that does precision medicine in this 24, 48 hour turnaround and, wow. and, and, and the whole manufacturing, the shipment, the warehousing. And so strategically, they're going to be a different company. Strategically, they have to re-instrument how they come to business. Strategically, they have to actually put the components in there. And so when you look at that blueprint, then you look at it and say, okay, if that's what we need to get done, what do we use? Oh, by the way, part of it is generative AI. Great, let's go at it, right? That's a very different approach to sort of saying, well, everyone else is talking about it. What can we quickly experiment and do? And then, as you said, a lot of compute dollars. I mean, inferencing, as you know, is I mean, you know this better than me, is expensive. Training is super expensive. Yeah. And so you've got to be very thoughtful about what you implement. And I think that's one of four things we have to get right as enterprises, as we embrace and endorse and get on this, uh, on this uh, tool. Okay, so 
uh, play out the next four. So start with the strategy, start with the problem in mind, start with the question. What happens next? I think the second one was kind of the put the guardrails and a framework and a methodology and guidelines in place. And there's many versions of and the many components to that. And we can have a more detailed discussion. But at the highest level, you know, you can't let this be a self-aggregated team with a self-defined charter running off and trying different things, because at the end of the day, this is meaningful impact. You know, there's regulatory componentry uh, components here, there's perception, there's consumer, there's safety, there is appropriateness, there's fairness, there's explainability, and obviously there's data security, data privacy, sovereignty, bias, there's tons of things in there, right? And so you have to have a really well thought through architecture for what you're gonna do and a set of diverse inputs from members across the company that can contribute to that. And you have to set it up front. You can't add that after the fact. You can't go back and say, well, we've just kind of just built out this amazing generative AI application. Let's throw some governance on top of it. It's too late. It's already over by then, right? And so getting governance right, uh, and by the way, beyond, right? Like think about economic costs. You know, these things are expensive. Think about green impact in terms of burning that many um, uh, fossil fuels. So there's a lot of things that have to go into it. And I think leaders that actually put together a guard, some guardrails and governance put together a structure that is business and technology inclusive, put together the right stakeholders and come at it together, we'll get ahead of the game, right? And so that's my second big one, which is I see this uh, in my peers that um, the best ones actually get this up, uh, up front. So that's the second one. I think the third thing that I have consistently find, uh, found as I look across many of these corporations is building the right tech stack. Uh, it's not an easy um, um, thing to do. And obviously answers are different for different companies, but just even think about the generative AI piece, right? Think about, you can, you can, you can build your own large language model for, from scratch and you know, friends of ours uh, and Bloomberg G GPT is a great example, have done that, right? That's been done before and it's a great answer for set of companies. You can take um, an LLM and the idea of foundation model comes from there and then use that as a foundation, but then fine tune it in your own area of work. You know, some of the work you're referencing in medical actually is a great example of that. There are many companies that are either doing or have done that, which is trained a foundation model further to be able to deal with medical ontology and the context yeah. and the syntax and so forth. And then you can actually do, um, you can use a generally available LLM, but put a prompt tuning or a prompt engineering meta layer on top of that so that when you send your question, you provide more context and more uh, uh, componentry, but you're not actually training an LLM, you're essentially filtering what goes in and then filtering and extracting what comes out. Three very different approaches, all three make a lot of sense, but they make a sense for different companies that are looking at different things. And so this gets back to the question of architecture, right? Like I think you have to start thinking about what is it that you're trying to do and what are the right technology components that, are, that build the architecture for what you need to be doing. And that's just generative AI, but think about it like generative AI in effect is just the last piece of the puzzle. The reality is, is that becomes a commodity. The proprietary data that sits in your book of business is really what's gonna drive your ability to orchestrate and drive differentiated value. And so how's your enterprise data platform set up? Where's the data engineering going into it? How do you actually harmonize and make that data really democratized and usable? And how do you secure it? Like that technology stack is a non-trivial thing to get right. And it requires a lot of thinking and, and appropriate planning around it. So that's the third one. And then I think the fourth one is actually just talent. It's uh, one of the biggest learnings we've had. I'll give you a good, good example. I was with a CIO for a large consumer goods company and he'd been describing a scenario 
uh, as is often the case in most corporations, had an annual kickoff. And the CEO and the top uh, executives in the company met overseas and kind of, you know, the three-day session, sort of plan for the next year, et cetera. You've got very, very senior executives at Fortune 100 companies. You can imagine the energy, the, the insight that's in the room. And he took aside an afternoon. And he said, guys, we're going we're gonna to do a, a, a case study slash competition slash fund. And what we're going to do is we're going to design a new product. This is a consumer goods company, by the way. So we're going to design a new product that we don't have right now. And so I'm going to break you into teams and we're going to break you into six teams of, you know, five people each or six people each, whatever it is. And uh, you have to now spend the next three hours designing a product that we don't have and coming and presenting it to our peers so that uh, uh, we can judge who's which who wins the prize. Right. It's a competitive group of people. They're all energized, said, here's a version of Midjourney and here's a version of GPT-4 and here's an individual that can help you. Right. And so go at it. And so you can imagine this group, very energetic, you know, like senior leaders in the industry, know the industry inside out, they're sitting and trying to figure out, you know, what is the scent profile for women between 30 and 40 in the Western half of Australia? And how do you do the market research? How do you, how do you put together this perfume? How do you come up with a slide deck and the presentation? You know, so all of this is happening, right? And they come back and present, they have a great time. As you can imagine, everyone's now deep into generative AI because they've experienced it personally. They know firsthand what it means. And, uh, and this CIO has turned the trajectory of their company through that one exercise. But put all that aside. Here's what he said. He said, uh, let's take a look at the people in the room. And everyone's quietened down and they look around. It's like all these executives that we've known them for years. We work hand in hand. There were eight people in the room that didn't wear the company's badge. And he said, what do they do? Well, they are prompt engineers. They're the people that say, Ganesh, I know you said this, but you want to ask it this way. Uh, what did you mean to ask when you asked this? Can I reconstruct your query in a different way, right? And they did a lot of the hard work on what's known as prompt engineering. And the reality is this company, and his point was, we don't have people like that, right? So the point I'm trying to bring up is there's a talent component to this that is a long arc of being successful is critical, but often get, times gets relegated in the back office of the enterprise. I think generative AI completely changes that. And you need, to, you need to really focus on talent. You need to think about attitude versus skills. Is that, you know, that's the other thing we realize at GenPack. We were hiring for skills and we've transformed ourselves a few times. And every time you know, new things come around, the skills we hired for is no longer relevant. And, and you know this is going to be true, Ganesh. The skills we need tomorrow are not going to be the same as the skills we need today. And so how do you hire people for attitude, for humility, for yep. curiosity, for the desire to learn? Frankly, for the desire to learn unlearn and relearn. And once you have that, then you have a talent pool that can actually get you through the changes that are coming, that can take advantage of what's here now. And I think it's one of the most important things to get right, albeit doesn't get thought about as a part of any sort of technology yeah. discussion. It's critical um, to making it successful. That's awesome. Attitude and talent. That's what a, this is a good framework, actually. Um, and I think you 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 blog you blogged about this at Forbes as well. This you know how do you get the how do you put the foundations in place for enterprise deployments of generative AI? Let's shift our conversation into risk, right? Challenges, risks, and you know everything we'll be hearing is like you know from sensitive data going outside the wires, or how do you protect your data and you know security and respect privacy and so forth to um, hallucinations. The, the favorite thing, you know, you ask a question, patient medical charts, you know, we used to show this demo how, you know, autonomized would do it more smartly, but you put, go to GPT, give a anonymized patient record and say, can the patient dance? And it, it reasons out unnecessarily and then tells you that, hey, the patient 
possibly can dance because their joints, there's no evidence that their joints are actually disintegrated or damaged. So if they try and practice, they can dance. I'm like, well, that's not the question answer that you want to listen to because in healthcare and especially in care settings, you want accurate, precise answers as close as possible with evidence and why you're saying that, right? So we do some smart context capture and compression context and passing on the just enough context for generation. So to, to make sure, no, but available context doesn't let me answer that question. So I cannot answer that question is the more appropriate response in a setting like healthcare. So hallucinations and, you know, you know, data privacy, residency requirements and so forth, right? Talk to me about the challenges that you see right now for enterprises, the dangers, and then over time, you know, what does this evolve into and what should they be? I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the guardrails and frameworks, but just talk to me about what's, what you see in the enterprises today. Yeah. yeah, no, it's definitely part of the guardrails and frameworks. So first off, look, this is not to be taken lightly. It's a real issue. Um, it's changing, by the way. Um, I tell you three months ago, four months ago, I was very worried about things like data privacy. Um, you know, how do you make sure that the data doesn't leave your corporate firewall? As an example, it's a big issue for us and for many of my peers. Um, the other issue that came around data sovereignty is a big issue, obviously, but also, um, uh, the other thing that came up is how do we, you know, how do we make sure we're not inadvertently training a publicly available large language model with the questions we ask such that the next competitor that comes down and asks a question gets the benefit of the training that we put in. And, and, you know, you don't think about it as data, but it's actually IP. It's your secret sauce that kind of can get diluted or can get kind of leaked out. And so these were some of the considerations we were really spending a lot of time thinking about. How do I keep my data inside the firewall? How do I make sure that it's in the regions or in the, in the countries, the sovereigns that it, they need to be? How do I make sure that my data doesn't end up training something that then becomes generally and publicly available uh, to the detriment of what we're trying to do in my enterprise and the IP that we built over there? And I'll tell you that many of those, the ones that I kind of put out there, and this is the this is the evolution of time, the, you know, this, the, the first issues to get solved. I tell you checkbox after checkbox, I have checked them off. Like there's ways to solve for making sure that data is sitting within your uh, enterprise and, and putting four walls around it. Uh, including, by the way, it does have to go out, things like tokenization that allows you to replace the most sensitive pieces of information, send it out, comes back, you you know, take the tokens out and recent, insert the content. But anyway, you can, I think there's capabilities now that can contain the data within the firewall. It takes work to get it together. There's ability now to be able to you know, sort of use your data without worrying about training a otherwise publicly available LLM and then keeping it to yourself. So I think, I think some of those boxes in my mind are checked off, but I think, and hallucinations. I mean, I, uh, I've been speaking with Sam Altman as well, not, not one-on-one -on -one in, a, in a public, um, uh, in, a, in a set of peers. One of the things that I found very interesting is he shared the hallucination rate in, uh, and obviously they measure it almost daily or, or hourly or whatever. And he was just talking about weekly I mean, that curve is going down so fast. Uh, and then for, for most of my colleagues, like for uh, what I would do and what most of our, my colleagues in the United do is they constrain the data set upon which the, 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 the AI works to one that they trust. So think about a financial services company, a great friend of mine, uh, he's got one of the best implementations I've seen uh, of generative AI is using that to actually advise their internal wealth managers before they get on a phone call with uh, an external client, for instance, yourself, Ganesh, and before I were to call you, I sort of want to make sure they understand your portfolio, what recommendations I'm going to make, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for that, they use a generative AI to actually get you the call script and kind of the recommended portfolio and you know things I want to suggest to you when I get on the phone call with you. 
and accuracy is paramount. Uh, fairness is super important and getting it right is critical. Otherwise, you know, you're in a very different spot. What he's done, what they've done is they constrain the data upon which they reflect to be the reports that they write themselves. So it isn't going to the public internet and checking for things and therefore introducing these areas of hallucinations that you talked about is actually constrained to the data set. And um, so the point I'm trying to make um, with all these examples is a lot of the basics now is trying to come together. But there are larger issues. I mean, regulation is still evolving. Fairness is an important issue. Uh, uh, there's lawsuits now in play around how Generative AI got trained on information and data that was in some ways improperly acquired or had intellectual rights yep. of people that were in there. And so how do you compensate the ecosystem? And you know, much of that case law is not resolved. Um, there's no precedence for some of this stuff. So there's gonna be a lot of bumps around the road. Um, and not all the laws and regulations are going to be as clear. And I tell myself, I tell every one of my colleagues this, you've got to think about this and say, what's fair, what's appropriate, give it thought, like get a digital ethics team on board and a set of people other than yourself that are coming together on a periodic basis and reviewing the decisions you're making in the step-by-step -step function of what you do. And assume for a minute that the regulations are going to trail behind, that, that case law is going to come much further behind that. And we can't turn to that and say, well, it's okay because so-and-so said, okay. I think you got to look at yourself and a set of peers that you trust and respect that come from different walks of your company and say, is this right? Is this fair? Is this reasonable? And then apply that. And so, um, you know, the answers are evolving. Um, but I think the one thing that's clear is it requires a lot of thought, a lot of engagement and the right people around the table. No, it's, um, it's fascinating, right? I mean, like you, you two... Um, to also bring back what you started off with, like this is the slowest things will be moving in the future, right? This is the point where it's going to be the slowest and it's going to only accelerate. And, you know, the regulatory uh, frameworks evolving and some of those decisions, I can't honestly make sense out of like the EU deciding that, yeah, you know, you can't use a, a non, uh, you can't use open source models to do generation of content uh, with, you know, for, for EU citizens. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, like, I don't know why, who advised them to actually putting something like that. My concern is twofold and I want to get your thoughts on it, right? One is, I think this place is, this space is evolving fast for technologists like you and I. So our average person in the Congress is not going to even have a chance to keep up if we're struggling to keep up with what's happening and how things are evolving, right? So, who they listen to, who they engage, who they actually bring together to go do it. There's a bunch of Senate hearings, but honestly, I watched a few of them. It Every one of them was very agenda laden, right? I mean, they were trying to make a point and trying to invite people who will talk about it, right? And so it was it was one of those things. So that's one, you know, concern where like, you know, are we, do we have the right people thinking about it? What should the industry do to help and accelerate that part? The other part of this is actually also the, the classic anti-competition playbook in the history of capitalism is regulatory capture, right? So you when uh, Sam Altman goes and says, and all due respect, and I really respect that guy, but you know, hey, you should actually have this strong regulatory framework and let me help you define this, right? You're just, they're trying to play the regulatory capture game. So they become, the, the big companies have the resources to engage with legislation influence this thing, lobby for that particular thing. And I'm not just talking about open AI, anybody, right? So that the detriment of that is to innovation and uh, younger companies and startups and fast growing companies who don't have the, you know, 
like I don't have time to actually hire a policy advisor right now, right? So, or the resources. Is that going to really create another, you know, like the 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 current situation gone bad, which is the big tech capture of the market and, you know, kind of create that particular environment since it's a very transformative foundational capability that's going to probably be the operating system for everything that we do in business, right? Talk to me about like, you know, that, that those two things. Well, I won't, I, I'll avoid uh, and not talk about the adequacy of the political process and the perceived <laughs> agendas of different people, et cetera. That's uh, a d- different topic. But I will say that what's most important right now is for all of us, all of you, you in particular and others like you to get involved, right? This is a time, I mean, look, in the end, the democratic process is about getting multiple points of view. Some we agree, some we don't agree, and I won't go into the specifics of that but actually getting as many voices around the table so we can collectively come to the right end point. And these things are tough and they're hard and they're new and they're evolving and they're emerging, right? And so you'll see some gaps, but I think in general, the trajectory is right. And more importantly, the need of the hour is to get voices like yours and others around your uh, your podcast and your other followers into the discussion. You know, I go back to something very simple. Look, in the end, fairness, appropriateness. I mean, this is common sense, right? Um, you and I do this every single day. But, you know, think about it. If I was uh, uh, I was on the te- I was at a grocery store and I was, you know, ringing up customers and someone came to me and said, you know, you just rang that bottle of for that carton of milk at $3.16, but actually there's a sale and a promotion going there and it's actually $2.50, right? It's just basic fairness. It's common sense. You and I would sort of say, okay, let me sure. stop and take a look at it, right? And you know what you you know what is the right thing to do in a scenario like that. You don't need regulations to prescribe that. And so the point I'm trying to make is, in the end, the answers are going to be, you know, common sense, good applied business thinking, do the right thing, be fair, but equally get enough representation around the table. And so the thing I would leave you with, and I'm not answering your question on uh, on the first part of what you said, because obviously there'll be many different genders and many different players and people are going to be at different stages of understanding and evolution of thinking. And so that's part and parcel, um, part for the course. I think the thing that's important is getting the right representation, having a voice and being thoughtful in how you're implementing your own strategies. Yeah, no, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, what, uh, and I love the way you, you framed it, which is the irony of the situation is you have this transformative technology. The only way you can ensure the right use is bring out the, mo- the most human thing in the whole thing, which is our perception of, you know, what is fair, what is equitable, what is ethical to go do. And if you just center the, the actors and people and, uh, you know, the participants in the market, to go pull that in that uh, uh, fashion, then you know we'll be fine long term. So that's a, on that positive note. That's so right. Thank you. And, it, and, it, and I mean, it, and just I mean, it's it's. I mean, I gave you a very simple example to make the point, but I mean, it's obviously much more complicated than that because the pace of change is high, the scale at which this is doing. It's not like a teller with one carton of milk. I mean, this happens. It happens instantaneously to millions of people, right? Because you can you transact scale, at scale. Yeah. But the fundamental principles don't change. It's about equity. It's about inclusion. It's about fairness. It's about doing the right thing. And I think if you take that approach and just make sure you've got your enough people around the table that can balance your perspective, I think that's the way to get started. And of course, regulations will catch up, by the way, as well. Yeah. No, Sanjay, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. You know, quick rapid fire questions. What's your advice to executives looking at, you know, and scrambling for generative AI, like quick 30 second advice to capture everything that you've said earlier. Balance inside out and outside in thinking. 
Outside in is about bringing new emerging technologies into the four walls of your company. Inside out is how do you transform? How do you drive culture? How do you change? How do you get everyone behind the momentum? And unless you get both things right, uh, a, a true transformation won't come as a result of it. Okay, next, last question. Um, of the players in the market playing in building generative AI capabilities, right? Can you predict the winners? Can you actually pick a pick a few winners over the next five to 10 years? And I know it's a tough question, but- It's a very simple know. answer. Yeah. No, I cannot. Um, I'll tell you though that I can pick the right categories, or at least I think yeah. four categories will emerge. Clearly there's gonna be a set of people that'll be great at LLMs, right? And yeah. obviously there are today and LLMs will get more specialized over time. And so there's a set of companies that play in that space. And that's obvious. There's gonna be a set of companies that'll take the LLM and apply into everyday tools. So back into this technology you're using here today as an example, or maybe my outlook or work or other things. And that's not directly uh, a generative AI capability. It's Microsoft Excel as an example. I'm just giving you one example, but it's how generative AI is embedded into that. So that'll be yep. the second category of, and, and I didn't wanna name the, uh, I'm not that's naming right. a company, I'm just gonna give you a category. Yeah. I have a second one. I think the third one is, we spoke about this earlier, generative AI is one piece of a larger puzzle and many different components need to come into play to make it make it come together. And so people that can stitch, you know, in the end, you know, you're thinking about an end-to-end -end process and you're trying to design and change the end-to-end -end process, not the one thin sliver that generative AI applies to and being able to stitch that uh, in your environment, in your enterprise and getting it right, I think that's gonna be a, a big piece of it. So I think that's the third category. And I think the fourth category is just emerging which is just like GitHub, there's gonna to have to be a place where all of these models and LLMs and derivatives and foundations and other things come together so you can pick and choose and assemble quickly and then making it cohesive, making it seamless, making it come together. So I think there's four different segments. I think each of those four segments will be winners. Now within that, time will tell. Absolutely, no, what's a, what an amazing thing. I used to, I'll, I'll close with this, you know, um... Uh, we, we, I know we talked about it last time we spoke to, right? AI has a lot of ingredients, but it has a recipe problem, right? You know, how do you use the right ingredients to deliver the right value of the right project? And how do you mix and match? Like you said, your category number three and even kind of four, right? How do you kind of bring together like the focus back on the domain, the problem that you're solving and making that happen? So, um, Sanjay, this was fascinating. Thanks again for another amazing chat. So thank you again for visiting Stories in AI. So I'll talk to you soon.